This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This week on Hangar Talk, a few new products, some useful, some not so much. And the switchblade folding aircraft slash car makes its first flight. A curious lawsuit coming out of Frederick, Maryland for a balloon flight. And an update on the proposed Ragwing Piper Rudder AD. Finally, failures in fuels up at UND. Ian, are you ready to do some Hangar Talk today? Let's do it, David. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Turn right, heading 130, contact final 132.4. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, uh, Paul Bertorelli is our guest. Wow. Well, that's a good find. That's a good grab, yeah, Ian. That was a fun chat. You and I both talked to Paul. We did. He's a really interesting guy, smart guy, obviously the head of AbWeb and Aviation Consumer for a long time and all sorts of other things at Belvoir and recently retired. Yeah. And uh, he's going to tell us a little bit about some of the top stories he worked on, uh, ideas for the future, and a little bit about cubbing. All right, cool. So we'll get to that a little bit later. First, we want to talk about a couple of new products out there. The first is the Garmin Watch. So this is the D2 Mach 1 Pro. Yeah. Gosh, did I get that right? I feel like I have to look it up. The name is so long every time. <laughs> you did. And you got to wear it while we do uh, did our flight around the Chesapeake Bay last week. Yeah. And so you've really been putting it to the test, Ian. Yeah. So I have been wearing it. I did wear it in the airplane. First, let's start with the price. I feel like on this watch, you have to lead with the price. It's 1400 bucks. That's a lot of av fuel. Yeah. Not cheap. It's also very large. You get this massive watch face. So the one of the first things is I think you have to, if you're a larger frame person and you wear a larger watch, it's going to be fine. But if you okay. have a, a smaller frame and um, wear a smaller watch, I think it's probably going to be too big for you. So definitely look into that, I think, before you buy it. But can I can I ask you a question even before you get into more details? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can, like if you're putting a jacket on uh, over that watch, can you even get the sleeve to fit over the watch? Yes, I did wear a jacket. It is big. I did wear a jacket and it went over the sleeve. If you have like a collared shirt with a tight button, that, that might be an issue. Yeah. So a few things. I think if you've stayed away from smartwatches because of, and especially aviation smartwatches because of the battery, I would not do that because this battery is unbelievable. I mean, this thing will go basically a month in sort of just everyday standby mode. It'll go for a couple of solid days in active flight mode. So, yeah. That's way different than what I've got. I've got the regular D2 Air, the first version. Yeah. And Ian, if you like the day we went flying, we did about eight hours. Mm -hmm. That watch was completely dead at the end of that day. Yeah. 
Yep. So this one, definitely not. In fact, it's still beeping away at my desk, you know, days afterwards. So it does all the things that people expect now from Garmin watches. You know, it's got like direct two and airport information and sunset and sunrise. And so all these really cool and interesting things. This one adds a couple of flashlights. So a red light, first of all, which is really cool. That could be very helpful at night. Yep. Yep. And they have it in the marketing materials. You'll see it. It's like you basically just hold your wrist flat and because the light is like on the top. Uh So it'll beam out in front of you and it's easy to touch a white light or a red light when you do that. It's really nice. So it's perfectly positioned to shine a light on the panel. Yeah, exactly. Or a book or whatever you want to look at. The watch face will also go red, so it'll save your night vision, and it glows up really readable at night without, like, blinding you. Because that's the other thing. Like, you know you know how it is. Like, you turn on some of the stuff at night in the cockpit, some of these displays, like your iPad or whatever, oh, yeah. and if you don't have it adjusted properly at night, it's, like, blinding. Right. So that's really nice. It's got moving map. It's really cool stuff about moving maps, that it works really well. And also some heart features, I guess, ECG and things like that. So, yeah, it's pretty neat. You know, I've been using the the D2 Air version, which is the little brother, little sister of that Mm -hmm. that watch um, for for a while. And I really do like a lot of the features. It also has a a built-in pulse oximeter, which although Mm -hmm. it's not extremely accurate, it's accurate enough for you to know when you're getting into trouble. Yes. Uh, Especially night flying and things like that. Uh, where where that watches um, you know red light would be handy as well, which yeah. you and I were flying around with Josh Cochran. It got pretty late, so it was actually a good time to use to test that it. Red yeah, light it was cool. It was the interesting. Watch. The other thing that all the Garmin uh, watches do, at least the Aviator version of the Garmin watches, um, do this, and I haven't used it yet. I hope I never do. It does have sort of a crash function on it. If you stop suddenly, uh, if you program your watch to do this, it will alert folks within your, you know, via email, mm. it will alert them that you've had an incident. Oh, um, nice. So that's yeah. pretty interesting. I don't know that if you read cool. up on that a little bit. Yeah. I, I don't really, I'm hoping I don't have to use that. Yeah. But it's a great watch and the Pulse Eximer, like I said, is pretty good. It does all the normal, normal exercise functions and you track your steps with it barometric pressure, things like that. Mm-hmm. It's a really neat little little watch. Yeah, they're cool. Now, one thing I uh, just drives me nuts about electronics is all these proprietary connectors. Oh, so you right. go anywhere and you got to bring like five different cords and you found a solution to this on Amazon. I did because, you know, what prompted me to that, Ian, was that when we met up, I had to borrow your... Your USB to Garmin watch (laughs) cord. And I was thinking, well, this is a, this is embarrassing, but, um, but, but you had to get it done. So yeah, if you go on Amazon and and look up a USB-C adapter uh, for the Garmin products, it is a little adapter piece that will fit on a regular USB-C cord, a regular cord. Uh, so you don't have to have a pr- the proprietary cord. You just need this little adapter. And, you know, with GoPros and the prevalence of, of um, iPad minis you know, with the USB-C connector, I think most of us are having a USB-C cord on, on us or in our flight bag these days. Yeah, that's true. So this little adapter is great. The cord and the uh, adapter together were 10 bucks. Oh, nice. And you could use... You can use the cord as a regular Garmin watch cord and then just stash that little connector in your flight bag or in your backpack or or your pocket even. Good. And that'll help out. But now in your case, with the with the D2 Mach 1 Pro, you're not going to need it for a long time. Yeah, very true. The other thing that we found just recently was this, and this is thanks to GA News, 
you know, the the tail beacon. UAVionics tail beacon. Yep. We know has got those two little fins on it. And you've got the, what, the, the wingtip light, the sky beacon? I've got the sky beacon. So I don't think I'll knock it off the uh, Piper Tripacer because it's a little bit above mm-hmm. my hand. But let me tell you what, that tail beacon, it protrudes pretty substantially from the back of a lot of aircraft. Yeah. And it is so easy to brush against that and crack it crack one of the fins off, the antenna fins. Yep. And you're talking about a $2,000 piece of equipment there, Ian. Yeah, So right. something has be to be pain. done yeah, to protect that. Yeah, so Edmo created a little boot that you can put on. This is a nice little, you know, didn't know you needed it sort of thing. I will say, though, and this just, and one reason I wanted to talk about this, this little boot, which first, so it's like, it like slides over it, you know, like kind of a rubbery, they, you know, it's plastic yeah. actually, but it feels that the kind of rubbery feeling. Uh-huh. It's $50, this 50 thing, bucks. which I just like cannot believe. I mean, this is something like a teenager would 3D print in their, you know, in their bedroom and it's 50, right. 50 bucks. Well, you should start 3D printing these and sell them for 25. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. And then maybe color and red or something like yeah. that. But, you know, it, it is a good idea, though. It's a great idea. A couple of buddies of ours here at Frederick Airport have those tail beacons. And when you walk around behind the aircraft, especially if you've got other stuff in your hangar, you know, mm, say so a scooter a yeah. or a motorcycle, yeah. I don't know, you know, repair materials, things like that. It's really easy if you're not paying attention to crack that off. Now, I think maybe UAVionics ought to, ought to include something like that for, you know, the purchase price when you're buying the unit itself. So yeah, that's what I would suggest. Yeah, so check out Edmo for that. Okay, hey, moving on to the Samson Switchblade. Now, this thing we have seen at Oshkosh every year, and they say, oh, yeah, this is a legit thing. And every year you think, okay, okay, that's cute, right? Uh-huh. They flew the thing. Finally, finally, 14 years after it basically was developed, it's a slick-looking airplane car, mm-hmm. if you if you will. It's a tricycle gear car. Yeah. So it's a car with a, with a one-wheel in front, two in the back, and tricycle gear aircraft as well. And the tail boom, it comes and goes, I guess. You know, it, it, it moves, if you will. Yeah. And the wings slot out from underneath the vehicle. So I saw it at AirVenture, and I bet a lot of our listeners have seen it, yeah. seen it at AirVenture. And we always are wondering, when is this thing going to ever If fly? it's going to ever, yeah. Yep. Well, it finally did. And I would encourage people to take a quick dance over to YouTube and look at it because they their first flight was actually pretty good. Yeah. They got up to 500 feet, you know. Yeah. They didn't just do like kind of a quick hop off the runway and back down again. It reminds me a lot, actually, of the Terrafugia, the transition. Just in, especially that first flight, you know, it looks like a, the Terrafugia you are is like, man, is this thing stable and pitch? And this one's kind of the same thing. It's like nothing happens for a long time. And then all of a sudden it just unsticks from the runway, right? Right. And launches up and you can see the pilot like, oh, okay, dialing it in. They did do about, I think it was basically a lap around the pattern, six minutes, but it flew, nothing broke. So that's a win. I will say, as always, I love reading the comments on AvWeb. A couple of people, are you a Top Gear fan, David? I've seen Top Gear before. Okay. Have you seen the Robin Reliant episodes of Top Gear? Uh-uh, I guess I need to now. Oh, my God. you got to go watch it. It's the hardest I've ever laughed at the TV. So apparently the Robin Reliant, on, I, I had no idea. This uh, Maybe if you're from the UK, you knew about this thing or it was around, I don't know, in the 60s or 70s. It was a three-wheel car. It looked just like the Samson. Oh. And somebody pointed this out on the comments. And so for like an entire segment of Top Gear, all they did was go around corners and roll the Robin Reliant because it's two in the back, one in the front. And it's like, it'll flip just constantly. 
And I'm like, what are you doing with the switchblade? Well, you got to be careful with that. That's a really good point because of where the center of gravity is. Absolutely. And yeah. I mean, we should mention the switchblade is a, a ducted fan, a rear engine propeller mm-hmm. type design. Right. But uh, when my brother Martin and I were much younger and we uh, would play golf with our dad, yeah. we wanted to get the golf carts because they were tricycle gear golf carts with the, no- oh with the wheel in front and roll them. You know, and we and actually roll. rolled one into <laughs> exactly. a pond one time. Exactly. And we, we stopped right at the edge of it. But, I mean, we were just hell on wheels. But um, – that is a problem, thinking about that. I mean, they don't sell three-wheeler ATVs anymore because I think they were outlawed, weren't they? Because people were hurting themselves because they rolled all the time. There's our motorcycles now that are three-wheeled motorcycles, but the two wheels are in front. Yes. Uh, and the one wheel is in back, so it kind of makes it more stable so it doesn't roll. Yeah, I would be curious to see if what sort of stability augmentation system they're going to put in to make the thing work on the ground. A few people talked about, you know, with weight being an issue, okay, flying car, they never really worked. The Samson switchblade, it is, because it's three-wheeled, it is not a car. It's basically, a you know, for all intents and purposes, a motorcycle. It is. So it'll have different safety equipment, different standards, and so in that sense, might make actually a better airplane. But it will be interesting to see kind of how they progress. There'll be a few out there, I think, people, you know, with the means to have an interesting toy that nobody else on their block has, you know? You know, I I like the whole air mobility thing, and I like the flying car idea. Uh, Malt Taylor really had it nailed down back in the 50s, I think, a lot more. But it, it makes me wonder, Ian, like, what is a practical application for that kind of technology? Because... If you still need a runway, then you still need a runway. Yeah. You know, I, I I can't see our I can't see myself driving down Interstate 70 here near Frederick and all of a sudden lifting off yeah. and flying. I mean, there are aviation regulations that are involved. There are traffic lights. There are power lines overhead. I mean, really, you can get into a lot more trouble. Trying to do something like that without the correct resources um, at hand. And to that, you would need a lot of infrastructure improvements before this kind of technology would mature. Yeah. And, you know, people, I think the best parallel you could probably make is that there are airplanes that can be trailered now or where the wings can fold back now. Yeah. Okay. So to me, it's like there's two uses. You can keep it in the garage at home so you don't pay for Uh a hangar. You don't have to mess with going to the hangar and everything else. So you keep it in the garage, you drive it from the house to the airport, you put the wings down and you go flying. That's somewhat possible today with trailers. People can do that with airplanes. The Remos could do it and Kit Fox can do it. And I'm sure many others, very few people do it. So I think that shows that it's like people just want to keep their airplanes at that, you know, at the hangar. It's like at that's the where airport, getting, yeah, right? Yeah. Well, other thing is that in a car, like you know, if you're on a side street or on the interstate, let's just say you have a fender bender, yeah. in your flying car, I mean, you're toast. Yeah. You know, you got to get that. Could you imagine repaired properly? Not at a, I don't know, at the switchblade dealership. It'd I don't have know. To be. Then a, a, yeah, a, a and PIA has to sign it off again, and it's like, yeah. man, I just don't know about this concept. Yeah, and you know, the other thing is going to an airport, landing, and then going into town or whatever you need to do to get lunch or have your business meeting or whatever. But you know, you and I, like you were saying, we just did this trip around the Chesapeake Bay. Right. We landed at, I don't remember, five, six different airports. Yeah. You know, with Uber these days, it's just, we went to some pretty small towns. It's just not really an issue. I mean, there's a few places left in the country where, 
you're not going to get Uber or you're, or you're going to be stuck or whatever, but it's just not much of, as much of an issue, I think, as it used to be. Right. I did run into trouble recently when I was coming back from AirVenture and there was no Uber, you know, yeah. so um, it happens. I, yeah. I, I walked in the rain to a motel, which that's a that's a whole nother story. We'll talk about another day. Yeah, yeah. But uh, the the Samson switchblade, I think it was when I saw it last in, it was going for about one hundred twenty thousand bucks. It might be up to one hundred and seventy now. I'm not sure. Okay. So figure by the time it comes out, two fifty. Which then it's like that's a lot of money for that kind of a of a vehicle. But we'll see. It really is. But at least they at least they flew. Kudos yeah. to them. Yeah. At AirVenture, there'll be a bigger buzz at AirVenture and at um, Sun and Fun. So that's right. Hopefully, we'll see them again an update real soon. Yep. All right. Moving on to balloon flights, something we don't talk about very often, but this one I think has implications for all of us, and that is a lawsuit that's pending in Frederick, Maryland, our hometown. About um, this is just a crazy story. So this is a it is this is a couple who apparently were just sick and tired of their neighbor allowing um, a balloon pilot to use their lot, the neighbor's property, to take off yeah, and land. The neighbor's lot to take off. So balloon pilot very legally taking off from uh, from a neighbor's yard repeatedly because they run a business out of there, I guess. And that's one of their launch sites. Of, there's a few others. One of the neighbors was like, no more, and is suing. And it's like, they are going for broke, man. They were suing everybody. like Everybody in, in everybody within shouting distance. So the company... Tailwinds over Frederick, um, Patrick Smith, who we know, mm -hmm. and, uh, and he's uh, launched nearby from a vineyard and from a brew pub and, and really just from neighbor's yards. Yep. And, you know, it's beautiful to see a hot air balloon at sunset or sunrise, and it's quiet, yeah. you know, generally. There is a little bit of noise from the burners, and that's another thing the couple on the ground was upset about saying, oh, the burners are really loud. And, and you know, I've been in some on some balloon flights. They're loud if you're right up next to them, but if you're on the ground, I no, don't think so. They're not, no. But here's the thing. This really has ramifications for balloonists nationwide yeah. because who controls the airspace, Ian? Is it the local government or not? So this is a good, and I'm glad that we're talking about this because there's all sorts of different interesting factors that go on with us. I mean, you know, it's like a little bit kind of relates to the whole Trent Palmer issue in that balloons and airplanes actually, and everything else, the place that you take off and land from is not the FAA's concern. So if I want to take off and land from a road, if I want to take off and land from my backyard, if I want to take off and land from an airport, whatever, the FAA does not regulate that. There's nowhere in part... 91 that says you have to take off from an from an airport. However, as soon as you get in the air, it's all the FAA. It is regulated by the FAA. Yeah. And so they were taking off from the neighbor's lawn uh, or whatever. I don't know how big the lot is. And these people are saying, well, they were essentially in our airspace over our house. And um, that's just not, uh, sorry, <laughs> they're in, they're in FAA airspace. These people don't have jurisdiction above their lawn. Right. The FAA regulates all airspace. And Ian, you and I were chatting about this beforehand because I went back to college uh, pretty late in life. A lot of folks who listen might remember that. And in one of the courses I took, there was a legal definition. And this was in, a, in the course of a journalism class. There is um, U.S. versus Cosby 
This is like back in World War II, Ian. Yeah, right after. Yeah. Yeah, when um, the U.S. government was, they were conducting training missions in North Carolina, and there was um, a family that lived kind of underneath the the airport environment, the approach and and departure ends of this airfield. And they sued the U.S. government at that time. Basically, that's what established the definition of airspace was and who owned it. Hmm. And right right back then, that was like, you know, this is like 75 years ago. Yeah. Congress redefined navigable airspace to include airspace needed to ensure the safety uh, in, of takeoff and landing of aircraft. So they ruled against the Cosby's. Yeah. And the, the changes have have been set in stone since then. And so I don't know that the couple here in Maryland, Eric Bladder and Susan Maharaj, have a, a leg to stand on because of the the Supreme Court case. Yeah, I would hope I would hope not. The other thing is that's you know I mentioned that the FAA doesn't care where you take off and land uh, in terms of the actual you know there's no regulation that says you have to take off and land from an airport or a heliport. That's local. So actually, the story here from the Frederick News Post does a good job because they do mention this. And they did talk to the local zoning authority. Yeah. This is, I found a really interesting response because Frederick County does have apparently regulations for storage and landing, but written for fixed wing and helicopters. Not not hot air balloons or really yeah. you could say not uh, powered parachutes or, or, or ultralights or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. So the, the zoning director actually said, quote, I don't think it's equitable or realistic to apply the standards to a hot air balloon operation. Right. So that's uh, that's interesting that they have local support there. But I agree with you. It's like it should not have a leg to stand on. Hopefully it doesn't. It has already been going on for two years. Amazing it got to this point. But you're right. They, they've, they've been back and forth in local county court and all the way up to yeah. Maryland appellate court and yeah. back. To, and basically what's happening is that the I guess the plaintiffs have to exhaust all their avenues before it gets kicked up to another level. Yeah. But yeah. I think the problem is that balloonists, balloonists, you know, countrywide need to take a page out of this and be really careful because taking off and landing a balloon is you do have to get permission of property owners. And frequently mm-hmm. what happens is when you're flying along in a hot air balloon, there's usually a chase crew on the ground. You're in touch with them with two-way radio. And if it looks like the balloon is gonna land at a private property, if the people are not outside already looking at the balloon going, wow, that's really cool, yeah. uh, and the pilot yells down, hey, can I land there? If that doesn't happen, then the ground crew typically will go to the house or the farmland or wherever mm-hmm. and uh, knock on the door and say, hey, yeah. you know, we, we have a balloon coming this way. There are no power lines or anything around. There are no obstructions. This looks like a safe place to land. Would you mind if we landed here? Yeah. And I, the, the many balloon flights I've been on, there's never been a problem with that. Yeah. But that doesn't mean there can't be. That's exactly right. And the same, honestly, goes for airplanes and helicopters and everything else. I mean, if you, you know, you got to check local ordinances and then it applies obviously more often to helicopters just from a practical standpoint. But uh, yeah, it's like, you know, just be a good neighbor and make sure you're getting express permission if you're landing on somebody's private property. And we'll be right back. All right, so David, I uh, want to talk about something that's going to be really important to you, I think, and I, and about 30,000 other aircraft owners, and that is the Piper Rudder AD, proposed AD, the NPRM. We mentioned this a couple of shows ago. This is a big, big deal for uh, antique Piper owners. Yeah, so uh, just uh, to review, what we've got going on here is a couple of aircraft 
in Alaska that were operating uh, as float planes, and they're a PA-12 and a PA-14, if I'm not mistaken, operating as float planes in Alaska, had the top part of the rudder sort of uh, bend over, mm-hmm. if you will, and collapse. And, and those aircraft had rotating beacons atop the rudder post. It's the central post that the rudder you know, revolves around where the hinges are based. And so uh, Piper came out with a notice of proposed uh, AD, and there was a commenting period, which is still open as we record this right now, but it was set to close really soon this week. And it looks like we have found out through the shortwingpipers.org forum that the commenting period will be extended about 90 more days. And there might even be other options to uh, inspect and check for the tubing corrosion. And so that's part of the big deal here. And AOPA is behind the extension and also advocating for you know, a, a different, I guess, an, either another way of doing this or a way to eliminate certain models from this proposed AD, which sounds pretty onerous to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the inspection is a for real deal thing. And so I think that, that we're going to find out a lot more about it within the next few weeks. Yeah. So no question, it seems like something is going to happen for some amount of older Piper owners tube and fabric pipers. You know, these, as you mentioned, there were two incidents they talked about in the NPRM. There's apparently been five others. I think it's five others, maybe seven others Mm -hmm. since like the 70s, but there's no details on which type of airplanes those were or anything else. It has to do with, I think, the type of steel that was in the rudder post. So the, the, the NPRM calls for complete rudder replacement which right now on Univair is like 800 bucks. So Well, it, the government says it's going to be, the FAA says it's going to cost three grand. Most owners yeah. think it's going to be six to nine thousand yeah. bucks oh, to replace that rudder yes. post. That, yeah, there's a 4130 tubing instead yeah. of what was in it originally. But yeah, and I just, I, I want to stress here that it's, you know, as you mentioned, the news here is that it's, they're going to extend the comment period. I think AOPA and Shortwing Pipers and some others are going to work to, really address the airplanes that are that are part of this because as you mentioned these mm-hmm. were float planes they had beacons on the top of the tail the higher horsepower engines i mean the j3 is included in this and j3s pa18s yeah. pa22s absolutely i mean it goes it sweeps all the way through the ragwing piper you know models yeah. all of them yep and um and there is as you mentioned some some really good work going on to hopefully get an amoc so an alternative method of, of compliance because Clearly, replacing the whole rudder isn't really necessary and uh, and might cause more problems. So something actually Mike Bush talks about a lot on Ask the A&Ps. Oh, you're opening yourself up to additional problems that you didn't already have yes. to begin with. Right. Yes, exactly. It's like, is the cause worse than the disease, right? I mean, is the cure worse than the disease? Right. Sorry. So um, in this case, that might be might be true. So anyway, this is something we just wanted to mention because we are keeping our eye on it. Murray at, at uh, in AOPA's government affairs is working hard with the FAA and and other and owners groups mm-hmm. to make sure that the impacts are mitigated. So we'll be talking a lot more about that in part because we're personally invested. Yeah, you you are <laughs> you're getting ready to be a Cub owner. We hope. I will be soon. Yeah. And I've got the tri pacing. You know, Mark Baker has a Super Cub that that he loves. Yep. That's one of his favorite airplanes ever. Yep. So we're all in the same boat with a lot of our listeners. We want to make sure that we do everything that we need to do in in the eyes of safety, but let's not go overboard 
if you really need to um, to replace something, let's do. Yeah. But this looks like a real sweeping proposed AD that doesn't really have a lot to do with a lot of people, especially if you don't have that beacon mounted on top of your rudder. That's true. All right, Dave. So we're going to we're going to close the show today with some news that really, I think, caught a lot of us by surprise and is still kind of digesting what this is going to mean as uh, as Paul, actually, who will bring him on and he'll talk about this in a couple minutes. But as as Paul Bertorelli is reporting in AvWeb and and we heard from other sources, University of North Dakota, which had started using Swift UL 94 fuel. So this is UL being unleaded. uh, This is not a, a low lead fuel. They have been using this for a couple of months now to the tune of 46,000 hours, which is amazing. That's inc- that's incredible. Yeah. And yep. so what they have found is they are going to go back to 100 low lead because they have found uh, recessions in the valve seats, which we know is an issue, a potential issue with unleaded fuels. And uh, like I said, th- this is bad news, I think, for the for the fuel transition. Yeah, uh, valve recession could lead to a loss of power. So that's the key thing to, to keep in mind now. The Swift 94, unleaded 94 fuel is supposed to burn a little bit cleaner. That's another thing that the University of North Dakota really couldn't put a fine tooth uh, a fine point pencil on rather. Uh, they couldn't tell if the spark plugs were cleaner or not as clean or were they were just the same as it was mm-hmm. 100 low lead. So that's that's I thought that was an interesting finding too. But Ian, they had a, a monitoring system set up for this to monitor the fleet of aircraft, their archers and Seminoles. And 46,000 hours, as you mentioned, over about four or five months is a pretty decent amount of, of wear and tear yeah. on the fleet. And so they were removing and cleaning the tappets. They reinstalled them with the push rods in place, et cetera, et cetera. And that's when they found that some of the valve seats were recessing. And basically, they progressively diminish as, as the clearance diminishes as the valve recedes into that cylinder head. And so that's a real problem that at some point, it could be catastrophic type engine failure, I, I would think. Yeah, so there's lots of curious things about this that we're going to have to wait and see what happens. A few are the one thing that you mentioned, which is that they didn't find that the plugs were any cleaner. That doesn't really make any sense because they should have um, been cleaner. They absolutely should have been. And and as Paul points out in his story, there is a uh, rabbit aviation in San Carlos, California, has been overseeing maintenance for some flying clubs that have also been using UL94, and they're finding definitely cleaner oil and less plug fouling. Obviously, Swift and their tests have found that. So we're not really sure what's going on there at UND. The other thing is that this this was an issue. These valve seats were kind of a known issue, I think, with earlier engines. But the Lycoming, the new Lycoming parts are supposed to be hardened against this. Uh-huh. And so Lycoming is kind of scratching their head saying, really? And so some of the materials are back there with them now being evaluated and the other question is, you know, if you look at the Peterson STC, the, this is the the MoGas STC, the one of the ones that allows you to fly on unleaded fuel. Okay. They do talk about that as a concern on some older engines. And so they recommend mixing in uh, 100 and, uh, low lead. So, you know, Avgas, I think it's like once every 75 hours. Just to get some lubrication on those valves and things like that. On yeah, the on the valve seats. Yeah. Whether or not UND was doing that, we don't know whether they felt like they had to. Again, Peterson says this was an issue more with the older engines. So it, it's a really, I think there's lots of unanswered questions here. The thing that gives everybody pause, of course, is that this is the highest 
amount of real world use yet. I mean, it's 46,000 hours. And these were in these were in IO360 engines. So these are, you know, four cylinder engines. They're not mm -hmm. six cylinder high powered engines. This regular four cylinder injected engine that you would see in the Archers and the Seminoles. So yeah. that's, you know, I, I was hoping we were going down the right pathway here to, you know, to get some real world, you know, experience out here. But yeah, this, this something is, um, we need, I guess we might need to find out further what was going on because the yeah. initial results do not look as promising as we would have hoped. No, but uh, but again, I think there's definitely some open questions here as to what happened. So I think we'll find out more in the next couple of months. The other thing that we want to just reiterate is that we're, you know, AOPA is flying Gammy's fuel right now in a Baron, flying one engine on Hunter Lowlet and one on on the Gammy fuel, which, as you mentioned last time, because you flew in it with Mark Baker, uh, we're going to be doing a lot more hours. We're not going to do 46,000 hours on one airplane, but a lot more hours. And we'll be talking very transparently about what's going on there right. with some engine monitoring and other stuff. And AOPA is what we like to say, fuel agnostic, which means that we want the best fuel for the largest amount of people, for the least amount of, of cost environmentally and financially. Yeah. So uh, we'll, we'll test the GAMI 100 unleaded and anything else that comes out there. Yep, absolutely. All right, David, so I'm really excited to get Paul on. He does talk about this a little bit. We talk about eVTOL talk about how he got started in aviation. And so it was, it was great to chat with him on his well-deserved retirement. Welcome to the program, Paul Berdarelli, who almost needs no introduction, but by way of a short intro, Paul, you are now the editor emeritus of AvWeb. Welcome to Hangar Talk, and Ian is here as well. My pleasure. Thanks. So, Paul, um, before we get going too far down the road with all of your accomplishments, I would like to know how you got started in aviation. I got started flying when I was a uh, 18-year-old private first class at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. There's a military club there, and that's where I learned to fly. Got my private license there. And what were you learning to fly in at that time? They had 150s. Those were the days when uh, flying got new airplanes every other year. And at 150s, they had uh, 172s, 182s, Cardinals. All kinds of stuff. So you learned on uh, on the Cessna platform. Mm -hmm. So you were learning to fly back then. And then take us through the progression a little bit of your background. How did you go from that uh, and combine journalism into a, a very illustrious career, if I might add? Well, thank you. After I got out of the Army, I went to uh, the University of Maryland in journalism. And then uh, I worked in uh, newspapers and magazines. And eventually, I found my way to uh, Belvoir Publications. That was around 1990. I edited uh, IFR first, and then I took on Aviation Consumer. And during that period, Mike Bush and Carl Marbach uh, started AvWeb. So I helped them with that. I did the news side of that. And then we, Belvoir Publications bought AvWeb in 2002. At that point, I became editorial director for the whole division. Okay. So take us through going from aviation consumer. How do we go from there to AvWeb with Mike Bush? 
Mike Bush was a contributor to Aviation Consumer, uh, and we knew each other through that and also through the Aviation Special Interest Group on CompuServe, what was then CompuServe. So when Carl started AvWeb, he asked me to do the news portion of it, which I did for, I don't know how long I did it, but eventually it just got to be too much because I was doing two magazines and that. So I handed that off. And then uh, when we bought it in 2002, I took over uh, editorial direction of it. Gotcha. Now, how many employees were there at the time back in 2002 besides yourself? You know, I can't really say, but I would guess, uh, see, we're all part-time or and not on the business side, they were full-time. I don't know, seven or eight, probably. Small business. Yeah, but you did a lot of work, and AvWeb was and is highly regarded for news. Aviation Consumer, I remember reading a lot of the tests, you know, y'all would destroy stuff like <laughs> two-way radios, you know, drop tests and things like that. So I was always curious as to, you know, how did you pay for those kind of those kind of things when you're dropping them from ladders and stuff? Well, we paid for them. Uh, we were never given anything by the companies. So we, we just had a budget for it. We didn't really destroy things, but we, we did bring things out quite a bit. And I think it served readers well. I think they respected it. Yeah, it was a straight shooting approach. And uh, everyone, including me, I think did ap appreciate it. Ian, you got something coming up? Yeah. So, Paul, congratulations. Thank you. It's well-deserved retirement. You've always, I think, identified yourself and, and taken pride in the fact that you consider yourself to be an independent journalist and you've maintained those journalism creds the, the whole time. So mm -hmm. I guess I'm curious the way that media has changed over the years and now with social media being such a big part of it and being so heavily integrated i mean how do you how do you feel about the way things are today versus kind of when you started i mean whether it be the objectivity or the business side of it i mean it's been quite an interesting business just in the last 10 or 15 years well i have a mixed view of it uh, on the one hand uh, on the positive side i think it's a good thing because the the barriers for getting new voices and new reporting and kind of a range of opinions are lower now. They're, they basically don't exist at all. On the other hand, it makes it commercially more difficult for what I consider legacy or legitimate media to survive. And there's a lot of disinformation out there. We don't see it that much in uh, aviation, although some, particularly on YouTube. So it, the consumer of has to know how to evaluate what they're looking at and and be able to uh, determine what appears to be legitimate and true and what isn't. And unfortunately, the social media universe is just loaded with stuff like that, and you just have to be a more critical thinker to consume it. And that has had that has had an effect on us, I, th I think, in that uh, probably the way we make news decisions and you know the use of video and multimedia to 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 drive audience engagement has certainly uh, affected us. In some ways, I'm, I'm surprised that we've been able to survive it, but, but we have. You know, I was going to follow up with that uh, on, on um, new media real quick. The one thing I do remember from way back when was, was you were an early adopter of little video snippets, little video reviews of new products. And how did you even think to do that, to just basically take a 30 seconds and spin around a product and, and dish it right on off? Well, I, I thought video was a medium with real potential because uh, it's visual. I'm a visual person. You could actually show things and talk about things and you could illustrate things in a way that uh, is very dynamic compared to print. 
And I thought that had a uh, real potential, and it did. Its commercial potential, however, turned out to be uh, very limited. Although certain YouTube channels, if if you want to monetize them, uh, some of those do quite well. Uh, but we, we, we never went in that direction. At least I never did, because doing so required a certain commitment to output, which I never really wanted to do. It takes takes a lot of resources to get a minute or two minute video out for sure. It, it does. Yeah. So very recently, just prior to your retirement, there's been big changes at Belvoir because of flying. Flying has acquired it. So mm-hmm. what did you see in your in your short time in that stint? Any changes we can expect or anything different coming up? It's really too soon to say. Uh, they've made a lot of acquisitions and they're really in the process of digesting all that and, and figuring out uh, how to manage it put it into a cogent hole. Uh, On the plus side, they appear to want to make some investments, uh, particularly in supporting the staff. And going forward, I hope they'll make investments in driving and increasing circulation and improving the editorial product. But uh, so far, so good. Interesting viewpoint. And, uh, And I know you always do have a viewpoint. Speaking of which, Paul, what is aviation going to look like in five years and 10 years? Oh, boy, that's a good question. Five years, I don't think you're going to see much change in five years. We don't see any real well-established trends. I think if you look at the numbers, there's some indication that pilot starts are increasing slightly, but I don't I don't think it's going to be a, a major change. And as far as training goes, it's going to continue to be active because there's strong demand from the airline industry for pilots. But no one is uh, really making any uh, major efforts there that that are going to fundamentally change that. You know, you've got electric uh, airplanes hovering out on the margins, but uh, they're not going to be a market factor uh, for the foreseeable future. Not five years. Ten, possibly. Not so sure. You know, a a lot is being made of the uh, air mobility market. There are a lot of players in it, and they're envisioning – a very large market for this, particularly Joby. I mean, we're not talking hundreds. We're talking thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of vehicles. And I just don't see the market for that. I think Joby's got a good certification uh, project. They've probably got a pretty good aircraft. Uh, they have some significant problems to solve. But I don't think the market will be anywhere as near as vital as they think it will. I'm willing to be proven wrong, but I, I just don't see it. Paul, do you not see it because it's a function of the consumer not grasping and embracing the technology, or do you see it more as an airspace and resources issue? It's all of the above. Uh, so, you, so you have consumer acceptance of uh, getting into these entirely new aircraft that are basically unproven. You have the infrastructure problem of, of building enough of these uh, vertiports, they call them, to achieve commercial density. That's that's going to be difficult. And then you got to get the numbers right. It has to be an affordable service, uh, and I'm sure they'll run it as a loss leader for some years, but you can't do that forever. And then you got to get the economics of the vehicles right. You know, if these vehicles cost a million dollars each, which they probably will initially, that number is going to have to come down. And then you've got all this competition out there. So I think, you know, uh, when Uber was involved in this and, and sold out to Joby, Uber Elevate, I guess it was, they saw the writing on the wall, I think. And, you know, they were making a huge deal out of this, that they had the data that showed that this would work. And the data they had was based on 
the Uber system and ground vehicles, but it may be entirely different for, for these aircraft they plan. So my view is it, is it, it is a market, and I think there'll, there'll be an, an established need for these vehicles. I'm not convinced there'll be the battery-operated versions of them, but they are very capable vehicles, so I think they will find some use. But what time frame? Not five years, maybe 10. Along those lines, I mean, it's a kind of a similar different dynamics, similar question, I suppose, which is unleaded fuel. Some obvious, you know, major technical challenges. Seems like the market's a little more accepting than it used to be. You know, reading the comments on some of your stories, which I always love to do, and others, seems like people are starting to get on board, but from a, you know, regulatory technology standpoint, maybe some challenges left. So what do you, what do you foresee is going to happen there? This industry, uh, general aviation as an industry, could not have manufactured a more effective way to keep this from happening. Uh, This has been going on, I mean, literally my entire aviation career and my entire aviation journalism career, I've been reporting on this. And we've made it more difficult than than putting men on the moon to get this done. And the reason is, uh, it's not that it's... uh, technically impossible or even technically difficult as as Michael Kraft formerly of Lycoming used to say we spend all this time loving the problem it's a solvable problem the problem is the vested interest in status quo don't don't want to solve it and the government has given a consistent pass on eliminating lead from fuels so aviation has has just used that year after year and we're still doing it and and this recent uh, kind of disaster at the University of North Dakota where they made an honest attempt to switch to unleaded fuel. And this wasn't a test. I mean, they were using a certified ASTM fuel and they found valve seat recession. This is just going to cause a lot of lack of confidence in the market and I think is really going to set things back unless uh, Lycoming jumps in and really analyzes what happened here. Because it's very much at variance with what other schools and owners have experienced with unlighted fuels. It's like night and day. So I don't know what went on there, but uh, we need to know a lot more about it. And, and it's unfortunate because that just provides more ammunition for vested interest and in status quo not to go to uh, unlighted fuels. And it, it puts... Uh, FBOs in California at great risk because they have a consent decree. And that consent decree said that as soon as an unleaded fuel was available, they would switch. Well, you got a couple out there now and soon to have one more. And they're going to get sued. They're, they're going to be in court again. And it's, they don't really have the resources to do that. It's going to cost them money. So it's, it's, just, it's just a perfect storm of a mess that this industry has created because there's been no leadership in it. And don't even get me started on Eagle, because to me, this is the reverse of leadership. It's, it's, it appears to be an organization designed and dedicated to maintaining the status quo. It's not going to lead us to the great unleaded future, at least in my opinion. On that 94 unleaded, I guess the, the trial run, not a test, but a trial run over at University of North Dakota, those were, those were archers and Seminoles. So those are not big-engined airplanes, per se. Right. They're your right. normal IO 360s. Correct. Correct. Yeah, this was a um, a golden opportunity was missed here. Um, it wasn't a test. They just converted. Right. Mm-hmm. They heard the voice of the students, and the students wanted a greener alternative to leaded fuel, so they converted. And it cost them a little bit more, but they decided to do it. 
and, and incredibly, uh, I couldn't believe this, uh, they flew 46,000 hours on unleaded fuel. This is, this is a huge number It is mm-hmm. for fuel testing. I mean, no one has done this. And the missed opportunity was that the industry, and this is what Eagle should have been doing, didn't really intervene there and say, look, we'll fund some additional uh, uh, testing and monitoring here. They should have been doing oil analysis, which they weren't mm-hmm. doing, or they're doing it minimally. Yeah. They were doing dry tappet tests for valve seat recession checks, but they just needed to do more to, to really understand this situation. And they didn't. And now this 46,000 hours is is gone and you, you really can't get that data back and it, it, it's really unfortunate that it happened that way because it, it could have been a, a tremendous opportunity to improve the confidence in, in these fuels or prove that uh, hey they're not yet suitable so i, I was really shocked at the outcome and it, it just goes towards my argument that that the industry has has just dropped the ball at every stage on this whole thing well, let's uh, let's switch gears for a minute. I was going to ask you about some safety improvements that that we've seen over the past few years. It kind of goes hand in hand with with the fuel technology as we move ahead. But what about some of the safety items that we now take for granted, but were novel even say twenty twenty five years ago, including GPS? Uh, synthetic vision, things like that. How have those items helped change the industry? You know, I think it's affected sales more than safety because, uh, you know, we always track the overall accident rate and the fatal accident rate. The fatal accident rate has come down, but it hasn't come down dramatically. I think when I started doing this, it was about in the range of 1.4 per 100,000. Now it's down to 0.9, maybe 0.85, somewhere in that range. The overall has come down a bit more. I think it was come down from eight to maybe five to six in that range. Now, can you attribute that to hardware? Well, maybe some of it. I mean, you, GPS is certainly good. Things like uh, fuel totalizers is good. Apps are good. You know, the Cirrus cap system is good. Sure. The airplanes have become marginally more crashworthy, but not great because the the majority of, of the fleet is still using old technology, you know, right. old seat belts and right. non-energy absorbing seats and that sort of thing. And probably the bigger impact I always thought was uh, the FAA's outreach programs, you know, the accident prevention program, which I was a part of for a while. And during those years, we did see some significant decreases in, uh, in the accident rate. But in the end, you know, it's it's still not behind the wheel. It's the pilot who who learns to assess risk and to and to mitigate risk and keep his skills up. To me, that's what finally determines uh, safety. So I think I think we've gotten better, but I think we've gotten we've got a long way to go. We may never get there. I mean, we were all shocked uh, at the accident Richard McSpadden was involved in. Um, sure. And I, you know, my reaction wasn't that, gee, that could have been me. My reaction was that that could have been anybody. You, you know, no matter how careful you are and how good you are, it has a certain randomness to it that just bites. That's true. That's a good point. So let's talk about you for a sec. You're a skydiver and I know you, you ride a lot. So now that you're hopefully going to have a little more time on your hands, what are you, what are you planning to do? <laughs> I love following your your Florida frustrations on uh, on Facebook with... Uh, 
<laughs> with the way Florida is going and the climate and everything else. So yeah. are you going to move? Uh, what's what's the plan? I'm kind of getting us in a position where we can move if, if, if we want to. I mean, I'm not actively pursuing it. Florida is has become a real challenge because of uh, climate and the incidence of hurricanes, but also the insurance market here is just distorted beyond all reason. It becomes an economic challenge to live here when your when your insurance doubles. Ours hasn't. We've been fortunate, but it could. And there are more people moving down here, and I think they're shocked when they, when they get here. But we'll stay here for now. I mean, I I do I do like the climate. I don't mind hot weather, and I certainly like it during the winter. You know, when it's uh, 75 degrees in February, I, I I can take that. Yeah. I'll continue to do a little bit of freelance, aviation freelance, and working with pilot workshops, and I'll do some for AvWeb as well. And then we're just going to do probably a lot more riding. You know, we just got back from an eight-day tour of Spain, and we'll probably be doing more of that. Very nice. Very nice. So I, I know you're a, um, you're a cub owner. You're based at, uh, based at Venice. Is that, Correct. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So I know um, hangars have been an issue ever since the hurricane. So are you able to get in your hangar? Have you been able to actually fly your airplane? <laughs> we could talk another half hour about that. <laughs> the airport, I don't think, did a really great job of hurricane recovery. So for a month, six weeks after the hurricane, all I could do was look inside the hangar door and our hangar was significantly damaged our, our, our hangar block our particular hangar wasn't it, it was intact but the doors were all jammed so last week uh, they were doing some repairs on those i don't know if they're done yet i haven't been down there in a while but to show you how this makes no sense the problem the, the reason those hangers failed is because they have sliding doors sliding doors and in this climate and any hurricane climate are not a good idea because they lift up off the tracks and they either blow out or blow in on the airplane. And, and so the solution to that is a bifold door and the bifold door, it seats against the steel frame and it distributes the wind loads to the entire structure. And, and the bifold doors do great. You know, when, when uh, hurricane Charlie tore up uh, Puna Gorda, the new bifold hangers had dents, but 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 they did great. So here at Venice, in the master plan, <laughs> this is just so silly. The master plan, one of the years, I think it might have been 2012 or something, called for replacing the doors. It didn't say bifold, but I assumed it to be bifold. Well, they didn't do it. So when uh, Hurricane Ian came through, it just ripped up a lot of the doors and just did a lot of damage. And uh, that could have been prevented. Well, now, and replacing, they're replacing them with the same sliding doors. Now, they might be putting in an exterior cane bolt, which would help. Uh, but if they don't do that, it's the same thing. And it is absolutely delusional to think that this won't happen again. Hurricane Charlie was 2004. Then Ian was uh, last year. And then, you know, we've had a couple that have graced us since then. So... In the next five to ten years, it's it's almost certain that we'll be hit again. Yeah, you had Irma and Maria back in uh, like 2017 and such. Right. Yeah, huh? right. Irma went right over. Irma didn't do much. It was really a kind of a weak category two or one. But Ann was uh, it was a serious storm. If it had moved probably five miles north or ten miles north, I think it would have flattened those hangars. I think it would have just destroyed them. Wow. 
Because once it starts, it's progressive. You know, once you lose one door, then it starts to lift the roof and the pieces and bits go all over the place. And one of the hangar blocks there was flattened. It's just completely flattened. Oh, goodness. And that, of course, makes all the insurance rates go up for everybody across right. the country. And we've had tornadoes as well in Nashville, Tennessee. Right. I got hit real hard and, and on and on. So, yeah, yeah that, that all that affects the industry. Yeah. Yeah, we don't. Uh, we just keep doing the same thing over and over again. I mean, this is a classic example of it. You know, we know we're going to get storms here. Why don't we put bifold doors or, or, or more structurally sound doors? But nope. <laughs> and it, it had to do with the insurance settlement, and the insurance company was driving it. Gotcha. And as long as they're driving, it's going to be bottom line oriented. Yep. Yep. You know, it's going to be the definition of insanity. Just keep doing the same stuff and expecting a different result. Boom. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of speaking of uh, Piper Cubs, with that is the current airplane you have now. That's kind of well known. What is your favorite type of airplane to fly? Well, I like tail draggers. You know, I have to put it into the context of affordability. I mean, I can't really afford anything else. And, and in the past, I've had uh, three Moonies and partnerships, but I don't really need that kind of capability now. So, you know, a, a, a tail draggers is a lot of fun to fly, not not too expensive to own. And uh, I mean, we're probably going to be selling the Cub, but otherwise, if if money were no object, you know, that's a good question. I would probably uh, love to have a turboprop like a TBM or something like that, but I don't have the budget for that. So, And and also, I'd want to have need for it, which, which means right. e- either business or traveling to places where it's useful to have. First, you got to get your house in the Bahamas, right, to justify then to yeah. get the TBM. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I admire people <laughs> who can afford those and use them Yeah, for, for things they're capable of. Yeah, We got favorite airplanes, tail draggers right now. Cub seems to be pulling at your heart. You've had opportunity to fly a lot of different aircraft. Name one doggy aircraft that you really did not like flying. Let's see. A disappointment. Or are there, or are there too many that you can't just name one? Yeah, there are two. Um, and a lot of people won't like this. 182s. Really? Wow. I did not like 182s. That's a controversial Oh, my goodness. Opinion. Holy cow. Yeah. You're, you're not one to shy away from controversies. That's going to kick it up a notch. The reason I don't <laughs> like them is they're, they're heavy. They have heavy control forces. They have a real tendency to land nose wheel first, which I think is a flaw in the design. And for the amount of gas they burn, they're just slow as hell. Yeah. <laughs> you know, said from a former Mooney owner. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, yeah uh, I hear yeah. you. I, we know where that's coming from. <laughs> I can get this down to 9.5 gallons uh, and I'm going 145 or 155 knots. Uh, yeah, I'm crammed in here like a sardine, but but that's OK. And the others would be the um, the Caribbean series from uh, not the cicadas and stuff. Yeah, the cicadas, Caribbean wow. series. Wow, I never liked why them those are because they're all they look cool. I mean, well, they're very sporty looking, but I mean, you got a five forty out there and it's burning, uh, you know, fourteen gallons an hour or more, and you're you're going one hundred thirty five knots. Again, I mean, if you to me the speed is important, and if you if you have to do it with a ton of power, well, okay, that's one thing, but it can be done with less power and, and less fuel burn. And uh, that's why I always like Mooney's. Cool. Sears line. Do you like Sears? I really like the company. Uh-huh. I think they, they do a really good job of marketing. And 
service and customer service. Uh, I like the concept. I think the CAP system has been overwhelmingly successful. It took them 10 or 11 years to figure out how to train pilots to use it. Very capable airplane. I don't like the way they fly. No kidding. I don't think it's there. I don't think they're a good flying airplane. And I've had this conversation with uh, Alan Klatmeyer several times. Are they, they land too fast or they're just sluggish in the air or not crisp? What is it that you don't like about the flying quality? They were really, and he told me this, they're really an airplane that was designed to be flown great distances on autopilot. So they got a good autopilot. You program the autopilot okay. and you fly it. Uh, but to me, it is not a pleasant stick and rudder airplane, and it relates to the side controller, I think. And it also probably relates to control forces. Compare that to a diamond, really any of the diamonds, maybe with the exception of the DA-50. But those airplanes are, are really aerodynamically sorted out. They don't have any, they don't have any bad habits. The control forces are really natural. I like a center stick over a side stick. Okay. Because of that, they have very good passive safety. And uh, if you if you compare the accident rates, there's there's no question that that's true. You know, their stall spin rate is very low. Their loss of control is very low. Runway loss of control is is very low compared to any other model. But they don't they don't do what a Cirrus does, which is to cover great distances at high speed. They're just in a, a different category. But, I mean, you have to hand Cirrus credit. I mean, they've done a terrific job building a good airplane and marketing these things. They're the market leader when the Gamma report comes out almost every single quarter. Yeah. They're leading leading the pack. Yeah. So you've you've demonstrated some of your individualism and, and the fact that, I mean, you told Alan Klatmeyer that the, his airplane doesn't fly terribly well, right? And so you have, and I say this with respect, you have a certain curmudgeon persona in aviation, but those, of course, who, who know you know you're a super nice guy. So it's like, is this is this something you work towards? Or were you uh, did you early on in your career say, I'm going to brand myself as this or uh, is this because you're not this way, you know, personally. No, so what what no, is it? It's just that uh, I came up in a journalistic environment where I was basically encouraged to express opinions in the right format, in the right venue. And we did that in consumer. You know, we gave opinions based on disclosed fact. But when I became more of a, a commentary writer, if I had an opinion, I would express it. But I wasn't trying to be uh, a contrarian in any way. If I saw something or felt something, I would say as much. And uh, I would be the last guy for example, Cirrus, I'd be a last guy to jump on the bandwagon uh, just because everybody else is. I know what I know, and I know what I like and what I don't like. And uh, fortunately, I've been in a, in a journalistic culture where I've been allowed to do that. You know, others are too, but I don't think that they don't feel as comfortable with it. I, I don't care. You know, if you want to think I'm an asshole, go right ahead. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> and, you know, and if that's, I guess... People tell me that's been an advantage, but but I didn't set out to do that. It's just who I am. You come from the journalism world where it's sort of like a question about what it is that, that you're writing about. You want to get both sides of the story and, and really like Sergeant Friday back in the day, just the facts. That's what it seems like. To me. Well, I want to be fair and I want to be accurate. If I have an opinion, I want it to be based on disclosed observations or disclosed that. I, I, I don't want to make up things from whole cloth. And and I think generally I have been successful at that, but everybody makes mistakes, and I've made them. 
But um, again, you know, I mean, you know, in a daily newspaper, we always used to say you get another chance the next day. So have at it. Fantastic. Well, Paul, thank you so much for the time and congrats again on the retirement. It's uh, well-deserved. And I know, well, like you said, we'll still see your, your name out there occasionally. And Yeah, once in a while yeah. you'll see me around. That's great. I saw your name today and yesterday already. So yeah. it doesn't look like you've throttled back at all <laughs> from my perspective. Well, I have. Uh, yeah, no, I definitely have. Uh, the, the best part of it is that, uh, you know, every Sunday night I had to come up with a blog idea and uh, Russ and I were to talk and then, uh, you know, this – Sometimes it gets really hard. Uh, if, if you have something good and something to say, well, it's good. But otherwise, you have to come up with something, and it can be a strain. Well, we wish you all the best, Paul Bertarelli. Thank you again for joining us at Hangar Talk. Uh, hopefully, our, our paths will cross uh, in person. Ian is a... Uh, is in the cub environment or imminently will be. So he might have some cub questions for you. All right. Well, thanks, David and Ian. I appreciate it. Take care. love Paul's individuality, right? I love the he's fact great. that he's not afraid. He's not afraid to tell Alan Klatmeyer that his airplane doesn't fly very well. I, th- I just think that's fantastic. I was surprised that he did not like the flying qualities uh, or, or the overall qualities of a Cessna 182, which is a, an airplane that you and I spent a lot of time in the last couple of weeks. But he, he certainly does like his tail draggers and his Mooney. So I got to give him credit on the Mooney you know, situation there for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So congrats, Paul, and his long career, and uh, enjoy your retirement. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk or wherever you get your podcasts. All right. We'll see you. See you next time, Ian. Hangertalk from AOPA, your freedom to fly.